Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you You'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. On Mother's Day, May 8th, 2016, 34-year-old Chris Fowler set out on the Pacific Crest Trail, a 2,653-mile hike stretching from Mexico to Canada. Chris's journey took him through the desert of California, the heights of the Sierra Nevada mountains, and the thick forests of the Pacific Northwest. But on October 12th, with less than 400 miles to go on the trail, Chris, who had stopped in Packwood, Washington for supplies, set off to resume the PCT near White Pass in the Cascade Mountain Range with a storm moving in. People would later claim the storm was one of the biggest Washington State had experienced in decades. The storm was so intense that it brought snow to the high mountaintops of Mount Rainier and the surrounding area. As other hikers left the trail to wait for better weather, Chris set off into the dense Washington wilderness with the storm on his heels and seemingly vanished into the thick underbrush of the Pacific Northwest. This is the Missing and Unexplained Podcast with me, Tyler Hooper. Yeah, we were already hiking in the snow, and there was supposed to be, over the last week or so, people just kept talking about this big storm that was rolling in. And so all the talk amongst us was, like, what's our plan? Are we going to... Are we going to continue to hike? Are we going to try to hike through this storm? Um, we were, at that point, really, we were kind of far from the board. I don't know the, you know, how many, how many miles or anything. We were pretty far from the border. We were pretty far from finishing. And with this big storm coming in, you know, it was unlikely that we were going to be able to continue to hike as we had been. One of the last people we know Chris encountered on the trail was a man named Aaron, or better known by his trail name, Pickles. Aaron got the name after eating a bunch of hot dogs with extra pickles on them. He also hiked with a green backpack and a green hiking shirt. The name stuck. Pickles started the PCT in April of 2016. He ran into Chris just before he and his hiking partner reached Packwood, Washington. Yeah, it was um, just before Packwood, there's... uh a section of the trail amongst hikers is well-known called Knife's Edge um, in Goat Rocks Wilderness in Washington. And we met him, uh, so I was hiking at the time with uh, my hiking partner, Forget Me Not, or her name is Chelsea. And so if I say we, probably I'm talking about the two of us. Um, But we met him the day before we got to before all of us got to um, Knife's Edge and we just met him like at a water source we were so along the trail you don't you can only carry so much water you need a lot of water each day because you're 
they're doing a lot of exercise. So, um, you know, there's streams or there's little ponds or just different water sources all along the trail. And so you we bring along a filter. Anyway, we were at a little water source getting, getting water, and the hiker comes up from, you know, he passed us essentially, but he didn't get water where we were getting but. Um, yeah, we get water and the sky comes up and he's got bloody ankles and, um, but at, we were kind of excited at the time to, to meet him because we were getting toward the end of the trail and there weren't a whole, a whole heck of a lot of people out there at the time. Um, not a lot of people still trying to, to finish northbound, uh, at that time and, so it just kind of cool to see him and meet him, and we only talked for a few seconds, and um, just normal, hi, how's it going? I don't know, I guess, what we talked about necessarily, but, um, yeah, so I met him, I think that was the, maybe the 9th, October 9th, October 8th, maybe. By this point on the trail, hikers are deep into the wilderness of the Pacific Northwest. Hiking the PCT in Washington State means you traverse parts of the Cascade Mountain Range and climb high in elevation. In the fall months, Washington and the Pacific Northwest can be wet and bone-chilling cold. The rain seeps right through, sending a chill to your core, making it almost impossible to shake. In the higher elevations, like the Cascades, snow, although uncommon in October, is not a total anomaly. Pickles recounts a day when he came across Chris on the snow-covered trail, and despite the difficulty in hiking in snow, Chris seemed to be moving along relatively well. We, that night we tried to hike up the nice edge part of the trail. Not that night, we were. it was during the daytime when we were starting it. But uh, there was quite a lot of snow at that point toward, the, toward that area. And it took us, a really, took us a lot longer to get toward the top than we thought. And um, ultimately we turned around and it was starting to get dark and... We just we decided not to go that route. At the at that area, there's sort of two different ways you can go. One is up knife's edge, and then and up, there's like an alternate route. So that the first day we tried to go up knife's edge, and then we turned back and camped for the night. And then the next day we were gonna try to do the alternate. And to get to that alternate, the night before we had hiked. Up, up it and down it because we had started to go there and then we turned back and went to camp. Um, and we camped that night in the snow. The next morning we took off uh, to do the alternate and just outside of, just, I don't know, just outside of our camp area, we started hiking. The terrible visibility was blowing snow um, and off to the right, sort of in the rocks of the mountain was this blue tarp and just kind of stopped and looked at it for a second. And it looked like someone had just stowed their gear there or had left something there. And we started to walk and, and decided, like, oh, let's go check it out. So one of us just hollered, hello, and a little head pops out from behind this blue tarp, and it was, and it was Sherpa. Um, he, like I said, it was really not very good visibility, and he was using his paper maps, and it just wasn't, you know, very easy to figure out. It, it wasn't easy to navigate that area. Um, his cell phone wasn't working at the time, or his cell phone was dead at the time. And um, we had already hiked that section the night before, and we had we had phones with GPS, and um, we felt pretty confident in hiking it because we had just done it the night before, most, most of that same section. And so uh, he essentially followed us through that section of the snow that day. Um, he came with us because we felt pretty confident hiking it. Um, so he stayed with us for, I don't know, maybe a few hours as we trudged through the snow and over these, like, cliffy peaks and um, through some, like, you know, kind of rough, scary areas. Um, but he stayed with us through that part of the day, and as soon as we got a little bit lower in elevation and the we got out of the snow and it was back to like green pastures and stuff. Um, he took off. He was, he was the faster hiker than us. So he took off, um, you know, just later that same day. Uh, yeah, that's how we first, that's how the, like the first meeting with 
Chris was. And and so we hiked with him that, that full day. Um, you know, and, and the whole time he had his sandals on, but he had these, like, like rubber socks on under the under his sandals and he had um, some sort of crampons uh, like spikes on the bottom of his sandals that you can take off if you need to wear them so he was wearing those through the snowy areas and um, you know he kept up with us he was he was probably slowing down a little bit so he stayed with us because we had we had the maps um, he stayed with us through that day and made it through all that snowy area just fine didn't seem to have any trouble or anything Sometime around October 9th or 10th, Chris made it into the town of Packwood, Washington. It's a common rest stop for hikers to refuel, get a hot meal, and clean up before heading back onto the trail. Pickles and his hiking partner stayed in a local hotel, but Chris discovered a seemingly vacant camper at the back of the hotel, which he made the mistake of occupying. There was a camper out back, and Chris, it wasn't locked, he stayed in there without permission that night. And the next day he got up and he left his backpack there and he went around the town of Packwood and he got some coffee and he got something to eat and came back to find that Marilyn had called the police because she found this backpack in there and she was kind of startled and a little scared. She didn't know whose it was or what was in it or anything. So she called police and they came and they went through his backpack and they found his ID and ran his, realized he didn't have a record or anything else. And when he showed up, he just said, I am so sorry. It was so cold last night, and I just needed a place to stay. It was late, and I'm I'm so sorry. And so she, they didn't file any charges. They offered him inside. She um, made him a meatloaf sandwich, and he hadn't been eating meat for some reason. He had decided not to eat meat when he was on the trail, and he said it was the best sandwich. He, he asked her for another one. Ma'am, may I please have another one? She said they talked about the Lord. They prayed. Um, they offered him a room. He stayed all night in the room. He got a shower. She did his laundry. They fell in love with him. They asked him to stay longer, as long as he wanted. They could stay for free. And he said, no, I've got to get to Canada. I've got to finish this. They begged him not to go. And um, he ate again with them. And off he went. He went into town. He bought, um, I actually went to all the places he went to. He went to the local hardware store and bought a little bundle of wood, wood matches and some fingerless gloves. He went to the post office and mailed something for $7 and some cents. We don't know what it was. It was a priority package, but they had no, no way to track it, so we don't know what he mailed. Pickles ran into Chris again in Packwood, where they chatted about life, the trail, and the impending storm that was said to be moving into the area. The weather reports were making some hikers uneasy on whether they should continue. Chris, however, seemed adamant that he hike every inch of Washington. Typical hiker type talk. We talked about gear and, um, you know, we were already hiking in the snow and there was supposed to be, over the last week or so, people just kept talking about this big storm that was rolling in. And so all the talk amongst us was, like what's our plan? Are we gonna con- are we gonna continue to hike? Are we gonna try to hike through this storm? Um, we were at that point, really, we were kind of far from the board. I don't know the you know how ma- how many miles or anything. We were pretty far from the border. We we're pretty far from finishing. And with this big storm coming in, you know, it was unlikely that we were gonna be able to continue to hike as we had been. And we weren't prepared necessarily to be hiking through a big winter storm. And it's not really safe to be hiking through a big winter storm anyway. So, you know, the talk was just like, what are you going to do? Are we going to try to find a a ride and, like, just hike maybe the last little section so you can walk across the border? Are we going to hitch to the very end and then hike south? Um, You know, if we skip a section, we'd be able to come back. Just all these different options. And so we talked about that a little bit. And I just wasn't sure what what I was doing at that point. I hadn't decided, um, you know. And and at that point, we had been hiking, doing this thing for five five and a half months, and 
you know, pretty much you could do whatever you wanted to do. If you needed to go somewhere, you, you'd be able to find a way to get somewhere. Um, you know, we'd done it for five months. So, you know, pretty experienced in terms of, you know, just get, doing what you got to do, whatever that meant. Um, so the options were open. We could do kind of whatever we wanted to do. Um, at that at that time, uh, you know, Chris seemed like he was, he was pretty sure that he was going to keep hiking forward, just keep keep going, go back up to White Pass. Uh, I think that's where Cracker Barrel is, that White Pass. He was going to go back to White Pass and continue to hike. While chatting that evening, Chris kept asking Pickles about his tent. Chris had been using a sort of makeshift hammock or tarp to sleep in for his journey. This would have been fine for most of the trail on the balmy West Coast weather. But with rain and potential snow coming into the area, it seems like Chris was perhaps thinking of upgrading his gear a little bit for the last leg of his trip. The night at the bar when we chatted for a long time, and then again when we went back to the hotel, he kept asking me about uh, about my tent. And I had just hiked for five months, and not one person cared about my tent because it was just like it was a popular brand, but no one had ever heard of the model and no one had ever seen it. And I don't know, basically they're like a couple of tents that the cool kids had or whatever. So people talked about those a lot, but no one ever cared at all about my tent. Not that it's important, but just, but he was at, at the bar. He was like, he was, he seemed very interested in the tent. And at some point during the conversation, I rec- I recognized like, Oh, maybe he, maybe he wants a tent. Cause he I don't remember, I guess, what he was carrying at the time, but I know he had a tarp. So I think he was just using a tarp as as a tent. And honestly, up to that point on the trail, it would have been fine. You know, the rest of the trail was like, it wasn't dry, but nothing. We didn't have any major storms or, or nothing too, too, you know, too ridiculous to deal with. So a tarp tent would have been just fine. And he had been fine to that point. But he was obviously interested in my tent, so... You know, we talked about that a little bit that night. Um, and then the next morning at the coffee shop, I, I just gave him my tent. So again, I, I don't remember what was with it, um, but I just gave him, like, the tent, and it came with a bag. Hello, nerds. Come listen to the History Nerds United podcast, and let's make history fun again. We interview today's best authors, whether they are established Pulitzer Prize winners or someone debuting their first book. Let us show you that history is not a boring class you took in high school, but a place where the best stories come from. And we don't just cover history. We also love to chat about true crime, biographies, memoirs, and so much more. So head on over to History Nerds United and let us introduce you to your new favorite book and learn the story behind the story. History. On October 12th, after Chris said goodbye to Pickles and packed the tan and brown tent he was given, he stopped at the local Cracker Barrel to try and get a new phone charger. But the store didn't have the one he needed. Someone offered to drive Chris into another town the next day to get the charger. But he was resolute that he needed to get back on the trail that day. Pickles gave him his tent, they said their goodbyes, and Chris went to stop at a little gas station and bought something else for 3 or $4. I don't know, we don't know what it was. And it could have been a snack. We don't know. And then he went to the Cracker Barrel at White Pass on October 12th, where he asked the girl, this is the same girl that gave him a ride on the tent into Packwood. She was working again, and he needed a phone charger because he was having trouble with his phone charger wasn't working. And he wasn't. he asked her, so she called to try and found one for him in Norton. It was, he didn't have, he had an Android of some sort that just every, not, you needed a special charger. And they didn't just have one randomly, you know, like you can go buy them off racks anywhere. Of course, it had to be something different. So she said, hey, if you wait until tomorrow, if you wait one more day, I'll drive you into Norton tomorrow and we can get that charger. And, or I can do it tonight. We can drive in there tonight. And he said, no, I really need to get, really need to get moving. I need to get ahead of the storm. I really need to get moving. 
So she gave him a burrito for free, and he ate a burrito, and he still was kind of trying to decide. She acted like he was trying to decide what to do. He used their phone. He spoke to somebody. He made an 800 call, and he spoke to somebody for 20 minutes. They couldn't figure out. They, there's no way they they tried to figure out who it was he called, but even the police couldn't figure out who it was, so we didn't know who it was. Um and he left about two thirty, three in the afternoon and headed up to the trailhead and um his he was up at the trailhead and I think his phone last pinged at uh, again, I don't know how many notes, I want to say something like five thirty six in the evening. Um it last pinged and it can't get an exact ping because we we think, let me back up, we think that he probably kept, that, that's when he got up to the trailhead. And here's why I know this, because when I went there in August last year of 2019, and I went to White Pass Trailhead again, this time I got out of the car and um, a group of us and we went up to the trailhead. I don't get a signal out there. And Chris, and Chris had AT&T like I do. I had zero signal the whole time I'm in Packwood. Hardly had a signal anywhere out there. And then as soon as we got to that trailhead, my phone went ding, ding, ding. All these messages were coming through. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. This is why Chris tried to call his dad. This is why he texted Amber. He had a signal right here. We got a signal when he got up here. And... I looked at my phone, and it was the exact time of day that he had that his phone kind of last pinged. So I kept the signal. We walked about a mile up the trailhead, uh, and I kept that signal the whole time on my phone. Whereas before, almost the whole time I'd been there, I didn't have signal. So I knew that he had that's what he did. He he got up there. That's where he tried to call Amber. That's where he texted Amber. That's where he tried to call his dad. He made another call to a man in California about the job on his farm when he got done that day. And then he, you know, we think he, we think he hiked. We don't know if he was planning on hiking through the night. We don't know what happened. His phone pinged. Last thing, we think he probably turned it back on to see if he, to make another call or to take a picture. We don't know why, but he turned it back on and it pinged. At that time, I said, I want to say 536 comes to mind. And um, because there's only one tower, they can't triangulate and see exactly where his ping was. So all they know is in a five-mile radius of White Pass, which is, you know, hundreds of square miles. So the last thing we are certain of is that Chris was on or near the White Pass trailhead sometime in the early evening of October 12th, where his phone was pinged by a cell tower. Apparently, Chris did hike often at night. As Sally told me, he wasn't always a really early riser, so it wasn't necessarily abnormal for Chris to be spending a few hours hiking in the dark down the trail. Sally did not talk to Chris on the 12th, but he did text or message Amber and try to call his dad. So I remembered, though I had never spoke to his lady friend, I knew her name because of him tagging her in posts on Facebook. So I uh, tapped on her name and I sent her a private message telling her who I was. She knew right who I was from Chris talking about me. And um, I asked her if she'd heard from him. She said, yeah, I just texted with him today. So... Uh, he just texted with me today He's in Washington and he was getting ready, but she said, oh, he tried to call her, but she didn't answer. So he texted her and lo- and then we found out later with phone, te- with phone records that he did try and call his dad that day, but his dad worked on Wright Patterson air force base. And you, um, most of the time you don't have a signal there. So it didn't even show that he had a missed call from Chris that day. So he did try and call his dad on September 12th or October 12th, but we didn't know. The only reason we knew that's for the phone records later. So then after we knew she's texted with him that day, again, we're like, well, okay, you know, he's, he's, he's good. And uh, didn't really worry about it again for several more days. His dad again, hadn't talked to him. So he was still, he just had a bad feeling. And I didn't have the bad feeling uh, like I had in June. I didn't have the bad feeling. And I felt like he was okay. But then about a week later, I had the same bad feelings as his dad. So 
both of us started, um, I started making those phone calls like I did in June, where you call to the next package and did he pick it up? And no, there's no package here, but he didn't sign for anything. And you just start calling, did he sign the book? Did he sign the book? You know, they have to sign those trail registers along the way. They don't have to, but they do. And uh, we couldn't find where he signed any trail registers. We couldn't find anybody that seen him. Nobody's left on the trail by now. We, we now know there was a storm at the same time he set out. We're now um, calling the police every single day. Sometime around the 22nd of October, about 10 days after Chris was thought to be at the White Pass Trailhead, Sally tried to file a missing persons report to the police. The initial experience she had with local sheriffs was not an easy one. It appeared at first that none of the local detachments wanted to take on Chris's disappearance. Well, we tried to file it on um, about October, oh, I want to say 21st or 22nd is when we started making phone calls. I think it was the 22nd when we were really hadn't heard from him and she hadn't heard from him. And now she was kind of worried too. Maybe it's about the 20th. I, I, I don't have a calendar. My notes are in the other room. I have a shoebox. I used to have it all memorized by heart, but for pretty close, it's about the 20th or so, and we started making some phone calls, and then by the 22nd, 23rd, we alerted authorities. Uh, again, we, had I known what I know now, um, we would have alerted a lot more people early on, but after my conversation with him in June, I was trying not to, um, I didn't want to overreact and want to underreact, but, uh, and, and not knowing anything about the. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing. However you cha-ching Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage Shopify is there to help you grow Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. But Northwest, at the time, you know, and then, and then also calling around um, if they don't know what county they're in. And since we, you know, we finally found he was last seen October twelfth, or you know, we knew he had been seen there in Yakima County at the at the trailhead. And we, he was supposed to go to Snoqualmie. No county wanted to take take it on because then it becomes their expense, their deal, their manpower. And unless you know of a last known location you know, which had been in um, Packwood, which is Lewis County, but the trailhead was Yakima County. So there was a pissing match going on between who... I let my my ex-husband, let his dad deal with the police while I was trying to call all of the locations. I was on the phone nonstop that sleep for a couple of days trying to... You know, that's when I discovered different trail angels and they would give me another name to call another person to check with another person and started getting things heightened. And then finally, I know Mike was kind of losing his cool with some of these people not calling back. So I finally called and left the sheriff in Yakima, Briscoe. I left him a um, not so pleasant message and asked him, what does it take to get some a missing my missing son what does it take to get somebody to look for my missing son and you see 
colorful language in there. And he called me back and said, I don't appreciate, uh, I got your message. And this is the first I'm hearing of it. And I don't appreciate it. But I said, well, um, I don't appreciate it either. I'd fire everybody around you if this is the first you're hearing of it. Because we've been calling for a week. And we didn't start off on a very good foot. And he said, well, tell me what you know. And after I got out my list, and I rattled off all the places I called and all the people I checked. He said, Mrs. Fowler, I owe you an apology. I will have boots on the ground today. After finally realizing the urgency of the situation, Yakima police sprung into action to search for Chris. Sally says her relationship with Sheriff Briscoe became much better after their initial encounter. I actually tried to get in touch with Sheriff Briscoe several times. I did correspond with him very briefly right before he retired in February of 2021. However, since retiring, he hasn't returned any of my messages. I hope if he hears this, he might consider coming on the show to talk to me about Chris. The official search started for Chris around Halloween. At the suggestion of her brother, Sally headed out to Washington State on November 1st. Uh, We were suggested to fly into Portland and then... um people were on Facebook, we can pick you up. So that's David Wolf that you saw the video. He contacted me and he said, hey, um, I'm a PCT hiker. I, I live here, have a family here. Um, just because so, he was trying to, you know, show he was a, not a crazy person. <laughs> right. He said, I, I'd be glad to come pick you up at the airport. And I said, I and drive you to Packwood. He said, it's a several hour drive. And I'd be glad to, well, you know, and he convinced me to do it. We had a long dialogue. And, and so lo and behold, the stranger, David, came to pick us up. So when we when we got to Dayton Airport, there was a film there from Dayton that interviewed us, interviewed me. And then when we landed in Oregon, there was a film crew waiting for us there. And then there was, um, and then we met David, and he was amazing. David lives about an hour and a half from where Chris was last seen. He's a lifelong Washington State resident with a family and a couple of small businesses. He's also been section hiking the PCT since 2016. There's two ways to hike the PCT. Through hike it, like Chris was doing, where you do the trail all in one go. Or section hike it, like David, where you do a few hundred miles a year until you gradually finish the trail. David, whose trail name is Detail, has put in roughly 300 to 500 miles a year since 2016. He knows the trail well, especially in the Washington area. Yeah, Washington is, is in terms of, you know, if you're compared to the rest of the trail, it's one of the more remote sections of the trail. Um, you basically ride the spine of the Cascade Mountain Range and... Um, in contrast to the rest of the trail, there's very limited phone service out there. Um, there's it's further distances between uh, between resupply points, which is where we get off to you know get more food or take a break or or you know get cleaned up. Um, so it, and it's a more rugged section. There's a lot of up and down, um, a lot of elevation changes, and it's 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 a tough part of the trail, but also one of the most beautiful part of the trails. David found out about Chris going missing on the PCT Facebook page. He volunteered to drive Sally to Packwood. And as Sally mentioned, David picked them up at the airport in Oregon. It was a long drive to Packwood, but it meant that in the car, David was able to help Sally wrap her head around what it's like to be a hiker up in Washington in the fall. One of the key factors in figuring out where Chris may be is where he may have sheltered that evening of the 12th or the following day as the storm rose in intensity. David has spent some time studying the radar loops from those days. It, it, it dropped pretty quick. As soon as that weather rolled in, the temperature, you know, dropped fairly quickly. And, you know, when he started his day um, on October 12th after he was dropped off, it would have been just overcast and, it, you know, not bad at all. It would have been really decent hiking weather. But, you know, as he went deeper, um, deeper on and, and further up trail, it, it shifted. It, it the temperature dropped. Um, he would have been into. It would have started as drizzle, you know, maybe it, you know after dark sometime. But as he was in his tent, probably sleeping, um, it it would have started dumping really hard, and it would have been cold rain. I think at the elevation he was probably again. I'm just guessing the elevation he was probably at at that time. It probably wouldn't have been 
um, snow yet, but it would have been, like you said, maybe, maybe freezing rain at times. So it definitely would have been getting, um, getting nasty and really uncomfortable. The storm brought torrential weather and snow to a huge area of Washington state. Pickles, who departed from Chris around the 11th or 12th, ended up getting a ride to Hart's Pass, close to the Canadian border, in hopes of skipping most of the storm. But he still ended up hiking in snow. Yeah, that last section that we did was, we, so the, a big, big snowstorm had, had come, and we were, or maybe it was about to show up, but there was a ton of snow through that section, that last section that we did, and without the experience of our guide, I'm not call her a guide, but without the our experienced guide, you know, there's I probably would not be able to make it through. And the sometimes there was a trail, sometimes there wasn't a trail at all. Most of the time it wasn't really a trail. You could sometimes see an indention in the snow, but there's enough snow, um, we were the first we were the first people since the last snow to hike through it. So at that section of the trail anyway, I mean it was I, I don't know. I, it was a thing that I wouldn't do by myself. As Sally, David, volunteers, and the police started to search for Chris, it became very apparent that it wasn't going to be an easy task to locate him. Other than the cell phone ping in the White Pass area, there was no concrete evidence to suggest where exactly they should be looking for Chris. David, who, as I mentioned before, has extensive knowledge of the area and terrain, has searched tirelessly for Chris. In a 35-minute YouTube video titled Chris Fowler Sherpa Estimated Timeline, David tries to retrace his steps. I encourage all of you to check it out. It's incredibly thorough and detailed. David also explained to me some of the exit points Chris may have taken if he was looking to get off the trail and out of the storm. Um, There's a few different exit points I think that would have been a decent option for him. I think the first one that I mentioned in my video, which was the first one he would have came to, and probably the best option was um, this, I think it's the Laughing Laughing Water Creek Trail. And that, that trail dumps off to... Um, kind of the northwest side of, of the PCT and heads down to, I think it's Highway 123, which is in the Mount Rainier National Park. And like I said in my video, I've, I've hitched that twice, and it gets lots of traffic because it's going through the park, and so there's visitors going down that road all the time. And so he could have hiked down that trail, and it goes downhill, um, which is a good thing. Obviously, at that point, he's up, up in higher elevations, and, and going downhill would have benefited him. And so that would have been the first exit. Um, as he heads north from there, there's other options um, a little further north um, to mostly to the east side of the trail, though. And I, I don't remember the names of those trails, but right. there are probably um, about four different options between White Pass and Chinook Pass for, a, for an exit of some sort. It, it's, it's the ultimate needle in a haystack. And... Um, yeah, I think if you did the rough math on, you know, from White Pass to the to the border, because when you think about it, we don't have we don't even have an area of really for sure nailed down that he actually could be in. I mean, he, there's been sightings of him way up north in the Winthrop area, which is, you know, from my house, that's an eight hour drive if I wanted to drive over to Winthrop. So um, if you did the rough math on how much trail that is, it's something like eight or 900 square miles of trail to search. So, um, it's, it's, it's incredibly daunting and, and it's something that really hits you hard when you're out there actually on foot. Um, just trying to, just trying to cover a five mile stretch, you know, to each side of the trail, uh, you know, off the trail, a couple hundred feet. It, it takes a long time to clear an area properly. So, yeah, it, it, it is the ultimate needle in a haystack. Another person who has spent countless hours searching for Chris is Aaron Wheeler. Aaron spent time in the Navy doing electronic repair, and he now works for a major defense contractor. He also has a dog, which you may hear occasionally in the background while we chatted. Aaron has spent some time searching for missing persons in Olympic National Park. Aaron found out about Chris's case online and was immediately intrigued. I was just searching web pages and 
I saw a Christmas story and I started reading into it, started looking at the Facebook page. And I was like, well, I haven't spent any time on the PCT, really. I was all on the west side in Olympic National Park. And I said, well, this is a new area. And, you know, maybe I can figure help figure out, you know, where he's at. And the more I learned, the more intriguing it got. And it's um, it just uh, kind of grew on me. But once I started it, I couldn't stop. It was, you know, I pretty much committed myself to helping Sally find him and there's a sense of just personal you know responsibility that you know you don't you don't stop Aaron lives about three hours from White Pass but this doesn't stop him from driving out to the area for a weekend or just for the day to search for Chris having been to the area so many times Aaron has mapped out the treacherous route to get to the White Pass area it's something he's traversed and driven many times. When you're going up to White Pass, it's a lot of switchbacks and a narrow road. Um, White Pass is not a good place to be in the winter. Um, it's steep. It's, you know, totally tree-covered, below 4,000 feet. The brush is very thick. Um, but as you get a little bit more toward, you know, the actual intersection where the PCT is, it starts to thin out. And, you know, you can actually walk around in between the trees and stuff a little bit. And the higher you get up, you know, 5,000 feet is pretty barren. Uh, short trees are alpine trees now. And, you know, about 6,000 feet, you pretty much hit rock. I mean, it's just totally exposed. You know, rocks, very, the, the trees that are out there are kind of small. And it, it's a... Uh, the trail itself isn't too steep at first. You know, as you get more towards Chinook Pass, you'll hit some in, and actually more toward the middle uh, by Crag Lake, you get some steep stuff that you got to get up. And, you know, Chinook Pass, there's a final ridge that's about 800 feet. That's a pretty good climb. Um, it's, it's up and down. And it, it's not, you know, an easy track. I mean, it's a 30-mile stretch, if I remember. I think it's 27, to be exact, between those two points. And there's very, there's only one real good exit, and that's the Lapping Water Creek. And that's about a 4,000-foot descent, or, nah, maybe not that much. It's it's pretty steep, you know. It's, it's a good trek down. I think it's about seven miles long just to get out. One of the methods Aaron uses when searching for Chris is satellite imagery. He studied the White Pass area so deeply that he says when he's actually walking on the trail, he can recall certain landmarks or rocks from the imagery he studied. Aaron is looking for any sign of Chris's gear, which is quite extensive. There's a really good visual list of what Chris had on him when he went missing on the Bring Chris Fowler Sherpa Home Facebook page. I encourage you to check it out. Um, I do a lot of research the first thing I did for the first several months since we were still waiting for the snow to melt and have a, have a clear trail to even be able to search was using Google Earth satellite imagery and, you know, putting it up on a 56-inch monitor and just slowly scanning through every place along the trail, getting an idea of the terrain, the features. Um, by the time I actually went out and started hiking and looking for looking for Chris, I think I memorized almost every rock on that trail, all the way to Snoqualmie. Um, and I didn't find hardly anything. Um, it was incredibly, you know, it was pretty obvious that Google Earth wasn't the best avenue, but it was the only thing I really had at the time. And I was going over it a second time, expanding further out from the sides of the trail. Uh, there was something noticed, and a few of us looked at it and said, there's something there. We can't. It looks like a tarp. And so we organized a search that that summer. Um, uh, Andrea and Josh Kirkman and Mackenzie Cleary, uh, David Wolf. Um, they all, even Jim Cleary went up the week after again, 
and they did find, you know, remnants of something. It had been mostly burned by the forest, by the fire in 2017, but we knew something was there, but we were also able to tell it wasn't, it wasn't related to Chris. Uh, not, not likely at all, but that kind of gave us hope that maybe that method could spot him. You know, we did find something. Aaron has spent a lot of time analyzing the storm that Chris would have been battling. I know David gave us a good description of the storm as well, but I think it's important to note how unique and powerful this weather event was for October in the Washington area. Here's Aaron's analysis of the storm. Um, It started off as torrential uh, rain in the 30s. I mean, it, it was freezing rain and just pouring for an entire day. Uh, the wind was, depending on where you were at, how sheltered you were from a mountain ridge or, you know, how something funnels through the mountains, you may find an area that's got winds of 10 to 15 miles an hour and in other areas with a recorded gust of over 90. Um, if you can imagine being in a, in a freezing hurricane, that's kind of what that day was like. Uh that night, it switched to snow. The winds died down a little bit, but it dumped heavy snow. And by the next morning, it was, you know, over a foot deep in places and almost zero visibility. So it's pretty much blizzard conditions. And that lasted for another day and a half to two days. Due to an injury, Aaron isn't as mobile anymore as he used to be. He can't really hike the trail to search for Chris. However, this hasn't stopped him from searching. Now, he uses drone technology that takes pictures of the search area. After the pictures are taken, sometimes thousands of them, Aaron spends hours combing through the photos. He's hoping to find something that may point towards where Chris may be. I use uh, a series of different softwares uh, depending on the terrain. Um... I'm just basically using it. It's an older drone now, but it was the best thing at the time when I started this several years ago. And I'd probably be upgrading that drone next year. But I use a combination of Cal Topo maps, SAR Topo, and I'll program in the waypoints and make a flight pattern and then manually fly it as low as I can go. A lot of times I'm skimming treetops or just underneath the treetops and I'm still having a hard time getting good imagery on the ground. Um, it's, it's challenging with, with that particular drone, but you know, I'll set a zone in an area and then, you know, absolutely photograph it, you know, many, many times to make a complete picture of that area. Uh, I just got done doing searching for a missing officer up in Everett. Um, unfortunately, I don't, he, his boat was swamped, um, trying to do a rescue and, you know, he was lost. His partner was saved. And I don't think, I don't know, but I spent a lot. I took over, I think about 3000 photos along a jetty Island that he might've come up on and it's it's painstaking work you know one drone search for one day will often produce around 2400 photos 2500 photos i asked aaron and the other volunteers i interviewed what keeps them going and searching for chris after years of not finding any leads i can't imagine the frustration sally and everyone else must feel Aaron told me it's a duty to continue searching for Chris. Ultimately, it's a military mindset for Aaron that keeps him going. You don't leave anyone behind. Um, I think part of it is my military background. Um, you know, in boot camp, they, they drill into you, and I don't care what service it is, but you don't leave someone behind. Um, and if you do, you go back for them. Uh, there's a camaraderie and just a, a sense of dedication to each other that you you always go back you, you don't you don't give up trying to get get your people back um so i think that's where it really kind of falls into me is is my military background 
and the camaraderie of the hikers on the trail is so similar to the military. It's you meet these people, they're totally different backgrounds, you know, everything, and you're just joined together by, you know, your love of being out there. And, you know, as a hiker, if someone's hurt, you help them. You know, there's no other help around. You're it. And, you know, I've helped other people down with sprained ankles and, you know, other things. And I know that they'd help me if I was, if I was hurt, you know. Um, sometimes you got to make tough decisions out there. Uh, a girl two years ago that was hiking uh, ran across an injured hiker that was too, too injured and too stranded to get out. And she couldn't stay because she didn't have enough supplies for herself to stay another night. And no cell phone service, so neither of them could call for help. And, you know, she hiked out, made the phone call, called me. I called search and rescue. And they went up and got her. You know, that was uh, a good story to finally get her back home. And... You, know, you just you don't turn you don't turn your back on someone out there. It's it's almost like the uh, the Mariners code. You know, one one boat if they, they hear a, another vessel in distress, they they're obligated to go help. On the next episode, I look at another hiker who has also vanished from the PCT. I also try and figure out what happened to Chris and some of the theories surrounding his disappearance. And there's a lot of snow, too. It could, whether it was an avalanche, whether it was a tree well, um, one of those hunters' tents that we came across was occupied. There were two hunters there, and um, I think a lot of people were hunting bears. But as we approached that hunter's tent, hanging on a tree outside that tent was a huge mountain lion that they that they had shot or a cougar they called it but um i mean i don't know just the there's a lot of different stuff out in those forests that that make trekking across snow covered you know snow covered landscape pretty treacherous pretty pretty dangerous If you know anything about Chris's disappearance, please contact the Yakima County Sheriff's Office at 509-574-2500 or message Chris's stepmother, Sally Guyton Fowler, on Facebook. For those of you who have subscribed to the Patreon, thank you. If you haven't, please consider checking it out and supporting the podcast. I'm also donating 25% of all Patreon funds to the Fowler O'Sullivan Foundation until August 1st. As always, thanks for listening to the Missing and Unexplained podcast with me, Tyler Hooper. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.